Time and again, the world bears witness to truths seldom said. Lend an ear. We promise enlightened, informed conversation. My name is Robert, and this is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Welcome back. This is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. This is the place where conversation matters. Special guest today, Mr. Pierce Pettis, composer, writer, raconteur, a person who is a member of that original class of folk singers that brought us the 60s, 70s, and 80s, Seeger and family. Pierce, welcome to Seldom Said. Thank you. Thank you. I was like 10 in the 60s, but that's okay. <laughs> uh, but you know, you... My first song, you know, the first song I learned to play was The Times That Are Changing on my sister's ukulele <laughs> when I was like 10 years old. So I was part of that folk movement. I actually was. That's marvelous. I've read your background. I've read your curriculum vitae. It's, it's full. It's golden, to say the least. Can you start with a little bit of personal background, who you are, where you've been, and what's brought you this time and place? Okay, well, my life's not nearly as interesting as it might sound, but um, I was raised in a little town of Fort Payne, Alabama, which is northeast Alabama, up in the corner by Georgia and Tennessee. So it's hillbilly country, it's mountains, it's Appalachia. We're not that far from Chattanooga, Tennessee, and... Uh, some of you may know uh, Little River Canyon and uh, some of the other sites around here. A lot of people come here to kayak. It's beautiful country, actually. A lot like upstate New York, as a matter of fact, and uh, except warmer. And, uh, and anyway, I grew up here, and I went off to school at Florida State, and uh, I lived all over the place, lived in England for a while. I was a busker when I was a young man. Uh, what else? I've uh, started uh, professionally at Muscle Shows Sound Studios, which is in northwest Alabama. Some of you have heard of it, and uh, had a good start there. I was signed there as a songwriter, and uh, uh, managed to get a couple of songs cut, including one for Joan Baez. And, uh, and then later I started going out and just playing college dates. And along the way, I hooked up with some friends from New York who told me about a thing called FASPO. So I uh, ended up hanging out in New York City with uh, people like uh, Ron McDon- Rob McDonald and uh, um, uh, and uh, I'm trying to think now. I can't even think anymore. Oh, gosh, uh, uh, John Gorka, you know, one of my best friends, and uh, uh, Cliff Everhard and uh, Christine Lavin was wonderful. I love Christine. And they all kind of took me under their wing and helped me out and, uh, and then later I went on and I signed a deal uh, with um, uh, Wyndham Hill High Street, and so did John, by the way. We both signed up, and Cliff, I think, was there for a while. And I did a few albums with them, went out in L.A. and recorded some albums. And uh, then I ended up, uh, they kind of fell apart, unfortunately. And uh, But I signed with another label, which I'm in on, on to this day, which is Compass Records Group. And uh, Compass, I signed with them in the mid-'90s. And they, at that time, they were in Gary and Allison's living room. And um, today, they are, I believe, the largest independent record group in the world, uh, which includes Red House. So John and I are back on the same label again, which is kind of cool. And uh, in between all of that, I was a songwriter. I was signed with uh, Polygram in Nashville and later with Universal Music for about 10 years. And I wrote songs for Garth Brooks and uh, Art Garfunkel and a whole bunch of other people. So, anyway, that's that's about it. I'm rather curious. Uh, you mentioned John Gorka, who is uh, also an individual whose music I enjoy. Thirsty Boots, 
some of his other songs. Folk music seems to be a, a kind of peripheral career. People are not looking toward making that large fortune. How do you react to having success but not having that overall success? Is it still satisfying? I think it depends on how you define success. Uh, I would consider John Gorka to be very successful. Uh, he's one of the finest singers I've ever heard, among other things, and, and probably the nicest single human being on the planet, I would think. Uh, he's certainly up there in the top ten. Uh, I, I would call that successful. He has a, a fine family, and uh, you know he's managed to stay married, which most of us haven't been able to do. And uh, but he's very successful. As for myself, uh, I'm just amazed every day that I can even make a living doing this because I love doing it. Most people have to go off and do things they don't like so much, you know. So uh, I would consider that a kind of success. And uh, unlike most songwriters and most musicians, I actually uh, have a home. You know, I'm 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 paying a mortgage instead of a rent. You know, so uh, I'm pretty happy with that. I don't really need much more than that. You're speaking to the choir in regard to that type of lifestyle. I, I can thoroughly see how you would enjoy it. I am curious. Most creative people need to be creative, if not for the success, if not for the audience. Was there ever a fallback? I didn't have any success. Well, when I was young and arrogant, I used to say, I don't have a fallback because I'm not going to fall back. That was my answer to that, which was pretty stupid. Um, I, you know, today when I teach, sometimes I teach workshops and, you know, performance and songwriting and so on. And when I talk to young kids, especially music classes and music schools, I always tell them that, you know, you don't, doing this for a living doesn't validate your art. You know, your art is validated by itself. And uh, some good examples of some non-professionals, you know, would be T.S. Eliot or, uh, you know, William Carlos Williams or um, uh, Charles Ives, you know, all those guys had straight jobs, and yet they produced great art. So, you know, this illusion that, you know, you have to quit everything and go out on the road is it's really kind of crazy. The reason I do it is, frankly, I have no other marketable skills. That's <laughs> not all I know how to do. So, uh, but, you know, that certainly does not have to be the case. And, uh, and I chose this. That's another thing. People complain about it. Oh, I don't make any money. Well, you know, nobody held a gun to your head, right? You know, you could always uh, go do something else. So um, I have no complaints. I'm, frankly, pretty happy about the whole deal. You mentioned uh, an eclectic group of composers there who did have jobs while pursuing their art. The one that struck me, though, in the midst of our conversation is Charles Ives. I remember listening years back to Washington, the Blood of a Land, and this cordancy of it. Is everything music, does everything find its way, discordant or not, into musical creativity? You know, I don't know. I'm not a huge fan of 12-tone, to be honest, but Charles Ives is one of those things I picked up in music school and, uh, you know, we, we listened to a lot of stuff. And uh, the thing that struck me about him, though, was he's a guy that, uh, you know, sold insurance for a living. And he wrote this pretty amazing stuff. And uh, as far as T.S. Eliot, uh, many consider him the greatest poet in the English language of the 20th century. You know, he'd be up there with William Butler Yeats and one or two others. And uh, also William Carlos Williams, as you may know, was a huge influence on Bob Dylan. Uh, and was this man was a he was a poet, but he was also ran a you know um, ran a hospital. He was a doctor, and he was in charge of an entire medical center. So uh, 
you know, that's the point. Is uh, In fact, I know I have a friend in New York who runs a record company and is a musician, but he's also an emergency room doctor. So, you know, I mean, uh, it's possible to um, to do other things for a living. An earlier interview uh, was with an accompanist of Frank Sinatra's from Nevada, Las Vegas, and she was mentioning how Sinatra read his lyrics as poetry. Do you feel that you're a poet who on occasion applies his words to music? Yes. I'm sorry, I missed that because I turned off my car, which is kind of stupid. Uh, uh, Okay, sorry, what was your question again, please? Do you consider yourself a poet who simply applies his words to music on occasion? Well, song lyrics are lyric poetry, but I would not consider myself a poetry a, a poet uh, in the sense of being a serious poet. Um, but uh, there's something that Jimmy Webb said one time, which I think is true. He said, song lyrics are not poetry, but great song lyrics are. And so I aspire occasionally to write great song lyrics if I can. Jimmy Webb was able to balance success with honesty is that a difficult imprimatur when you're trying to create? Uh, I don't think it's any more difficult when you're trying to create than if you're trying to sell tires. I mean, <laughs> you're either honest or you're not, you know. And uh, fortunately, there's not enough money in this business to be very dishonest. So uh, that probably keeps a lot of us honest, you know. Um, but even so, I, I've known a few people who've made a lot of money in, in music, Um and still managed to have some integrity. Um, you know, I've um, I've had the pleasure of knowing Peter Gill, and uh, I've you know I've, I've, I'm passing acquaintance with Lyle Lovett and uh, a few other people, and and you know they've all started. Jesse Winchester was one of my heroes. I think Jesse did pretty well, but they they were all extremely honest people, very decent people. You know, so it didn't have anything to do with money. It just you know. You mentioned that. Uh being rather young in the 60s. Uh, unfortunately, you're speaking to an older person now. I was uh, <laughs> at the peak of whatever ages I have in my life. It seemed like a time where everyone had to be political. Everyone had to have a voice, and it expressly impacted on folk singing. Can you be an apolitical folk singer in 2019? I suppose you can, but I, I tend to like what Wavy Gravy. You remember Wavy Gravy? From yes, yes, I do. <laughs> he had a great quote, uh, the way he defined uh, politics, poly from the many and ticks, little blood-sucking bourbon. Uh, <laughs> and so, frankly, that's my attitude. I mean, first of all, I don't think I, I'm qualified to tell other people how to think and vote. I think that's up to them. Uh, I try to be a responsible person myself, but that's not the purpose of my art. I mean, that's the purpose of propaganda, you know? And I'm not a propagandist. I'm a songwriter. Now, of course, I, my political views might find their way into my songs occasionally, but that's not the point, you know? I think one of the reasons we remember Woody Guthrie as a great, great uh, artist is not because of his political views, but because of the quality of his writing. Uh, they just happened to be political, but he could have been writing about anything. He, I mean, he could have been Ezra Pound, you know? But it, it doesn't matter. I mean, as long as you're producing great work, I mean, that's what stands the test of time and not your pol- politics can go, you know? Um, I mean, what were politics 100 years ago, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, 
or 50 years ago. I mean, these things change. They change all the time. But art, you know, art has to be something that's constant and universal, in my opinion. I'm, I'm spouting a lot of opinions here. but Nothing wrong with that. Woody Guthrie is a personal idol. Again, uh, I guess as with yourself, being younger in that period, I certainly was young when he toured. But he had some very interesting quotes, uh, two that strike my memory. One, he said that uh, a lullaby is propaganda for a baby. He would write to put people at ease. And secondly, he said everything is plagiarism. There's nothing really essentially new. How do you respond to that latter quote? I, I know what he means, except I would substitute the word um, uh, redundancy. Uh, I think everything is redundant. Plagiarism is where you intentionally steal from somebody else, and I don't think that's necessarily the case. But I do think that everything we hear goes into our subconscious. I mean, I had a friend years ago, I wrote a song that just happened to have the same line in it as his song. And he, took, he very sheepishly took me aside and asked me if I'd stolen that line. I said, God, no, man, I didn't. I just... We just follow the same line, you know. And I appreciate the fact that he did confront me and didn't just, you know, talk about me behind my back or something. But, I mean, that happens from time to time. But there's a difference between, you know, people just regurgitating out, you know, what's been boiling inside of them and, and somebody deliberately lifting lines out of something. Uh, and, and plagiarism is something you know it when you see it. At least I do. And um, so I, I don't worry about it too much, frankly. And as far as being ridiculous, we all stand on the shoulders of giants, as it's said. Uh, you know, Dylan would certainly say that. And uh, I know Jesse Winchester, he would say that. He said he owed everything to, you know, Burl Street and Elvis. So, <laughs> you know. Uh, Have you ever given a song away? Given a song away. Uh, yeah, I guess I have. I mean, I've written songs for friends' weddings and never bothered to publish them. So, uh, uh, but, you know, I, I don't think intellectual property should be just given away. I, I think, you know, people work too hard at this. And, uh, you know, I, I know authors that get, you know, I know an author got a really big advance on a book that he wrote, and that was great. But if you divide the 20 years he lived on dirt by that advance, he still only made like $20,000 a year, you know. So, um, you know, I mean, it's, uh, I think people should be paid for their work. I think that's only fair. You mentioned T.S. Eliot, uh, some of the things he did, the dry sauvage and his quartums. He waited, and he just decided when to put them out there, and then he waited to be a success. Is there a point at which the wait becomes too long? Oh, no. Well, it depends on what you're waiting on, you know. Uh, I mean, when I was young, I was into the myth of fame and fortune and whatever, and you know, I got out there and beat my head against the wall and was jealous of my friends and was disappointed. And it wasn't until later when some other life events intruded and, and kind of uh, shoved all that out of the way that I finally began to realize the whole purpose of this thing is is something hopefully a little deeper and a little better than just fame and fortune. I also have friends who've had fame and fortune and it's a real pain in the butt, you know? I mean, one friend of mine, he was in a group that sold more records than the Beatles, you know? And he would come home from a tour, he and his wife, and they'd find some weird woman sitting at their breakfast table claiming to be his wife, you know? I mean, crazy people follow you around. And so, I mean, who needs that, right? Uh, another friend that went out, he was also very successful, and he told me he'd spend five months on a bus 
take an Ambien every day, every night, just so he could go to sleep and then wake up next day and play in a coliseum that looked exactly like the last one he played in. And, you know, that's not a lot of fun, really. Um, I, I, I think I'm, I kind of like where I'm at, frankly. You mentioned, strangely enough, first time anyone's ever mentioned his name on an interview of mine, Wavy Gravy. My favorite memory of Wavy Gravy is hearing the loudspeakers saying, it's time the eggs are here. <laughs> if there were a Woodstock in 2019 with that attitude, would you have enjoyed playing on it? Would I have enjoyed Woodstock? Oh, God, from what I've heard, probably not. I mean, I've heard it was a complete disaster. Uh, no toilets and uh, people running around doing acid. I don't know. I mean, you know, no, I don't think so. Uh, uh, you know, my uh, my ex-wife was actually at Woodstock, but she was an infant. Uh, her aunt took her there uh, when she was supposed to be babysitting. So as far as I know, they passed her around like a bong. You know, I don't know. <laughs> at any rate, she never was the same after that. Um, but, uh, you know, no, I don't. I do like playing festivals, but the ones I play these days are a little more organized than Woodstock, apparently. Do you like playing outdoors? Yeah, I do. I, I, I do like it. I don't like mosquitoes, so, you know, but I, I like playing outdoors, and uh, I like the crowds. I, you know, it's always kind of a, uh, you know, pardon the pun, a festive atmosphere, and, and I like that, you know. David Bowie had a great quote about playing outdoors. He said uh, to a performer who's rather nervous, he said, just look up. Look at the stars, look at the sun, the moon. Play. Ignore everybody being there. Are you able to ignore the audience when you're really into it? Uh, well, I, actually, I feed off the audience. I, their energy energizes me. And I remember one time I played at the Greenbelt Festival over in England. And when I started out, there was a few thousand people, you know, and then as it got dark, um, at one point they started shining lights on the crowd, and there must have been 20,000 people or more. I mean, you, I could tell by the sound of them. And, man, that was exciting. That was great. I mean, that's a great feeling, you know. And um, uh, But, you know, I could have just as good a feeling for 20 people, you know, if they're into the music. I mean, that's, the why, that's why you show up. You come to play, you know. It's not about you. It's about them, you know. Well said. Well said. I can appreciate that feeling. Was there a moment, an epiphanal moment in your life, that Damascus point where, as a young person, you said, this is what I intend to do for the rest of my life? You know, I wish I could say that, but I think I just sort of fell into it because other things fell away. Uh, I always enjoyed playing music. Uh, when I went off to school, there just didn't seem to be anything else I was interested in. And, um, you know, it's not the job that I probably, it's not something any sane person would deliberately choose, I don't think. But I ended up going, well, if I'm going to play music, then I guess I should go to music school. And I did that for a couple of years, and I got sort of kicked out because I was not following the rules. And uh, ended up uh, getting a degree in communication, which actually served me pretty well because it helps me do what we're doing right now. I understand, you know, how newspapers and radio work, but... Um, but at any rate, um, yeah, I just kind of just found myself doing it. You know, I think that's what happens. Uh, whatever you end up doing, you just end up doing it, you know. Uh, but I guess there's some people that determine. My daughter determined at a very early age she was going to do what she does. And, um, you know, and that's that's pretty cool. But I've never been that much of a determinist, I suppose. There's a marvelous 
quote attributed to Willie Mays might be apocryphal. He was once asked why he never threw to the wrong base, and he said, I simply don't. I have a talent for doing what I do. Do you feel that talent can be taught? Uh, I think we all have talents in various ways. It's up to us to find out what they are. Uh, I mean, a person who has talent, let's say writing songs or just generally being creative, probably could be creative in other fields. Uh, you know, I've known musicians who went into coding, and, and, you know, back in the early days of, um, of the Internet and all, and become very successful. Uh, you know, creativity is sort of, it's, creativity is something I think we all have, but we have to nurture it and we have to develop it. Uh, unfortunately, I think our culture for hundreds of years now has created a divide between our left and right brains so that we're told that, um, you know, the dream side of us is, uh, is inconsequential and that we should only pay attention to the, um, to the, uh, empirical side and not the aesthetic, but, I happen to think, uh, as Da Vinci believed, that the two have to work in tangent. They have to both be there. So um, I, I believe we're all born with that, but it's up to us to develop it. And, if, uh, you know, it's like, it's kind of like the old say, what is it? Uh, I just remember, um, um, what's his name, the economist, um, uh, Adam Smith. He said there were three things you need in, the, in life. You need uh, self-interest, division of labor, and uh, free trade. And... Um, and I don't know about the, the other two, but I know that division of labor is a very important thing. You have to figure out where you fit into the picture. And um, that's our job. That's everybody's job. You know? One of the first things to be cut in any educational budget, at least uh, from whence I'm speaking, the New York metropolitan area, one of the first things to be cut are the arts, music, painting, drawing, whatever the case might be, poetry. Has been shaped purely toward um, purely toward um, you know the, uh, the left brain activities you know the, uh, which is important but it's like if you can't read it as a number or if you can't quantify it in some way then it doesn't have any validity and I think that's silly um, you know um, I think that leaves off uh, at least half of life if not the most important half but that's of course that's my opinion again um, everyone you've mentioned John Gorka. Woody Guthrie, Bob Dylan. They're singers, composers, but they're also educators, as are you. You write and you teach a lesson and share a feeling. How would you teach music? Um, well, I don't really consider myself an educator. I, I frankly wouldn't want to have that responsibility. Uh, sometimes I teach workshops and songwriting. But when I do that, I, I defer a lot to other writers that I admire. I use, I defer a lot to Jimmy Webb, for example, and to uh, Jesse Winchester and the Guy Clark and the Joni Mitchell, and I use them as examples. I also uh, use a lot of what I learned in most shows about just your basic rules of pop songwriting, uh, explaining to them that you know you shouldn't be afraid of a word like popularity or commercial that. What that really is is a language, and it's a means of reaching a lot of people speaking their language. And uh, if you want to use that to uh, enrich yourself, that's fine. But mainly what you're doing is you're just talking to a lot of people in their language. So, you know, I like doing that. But as far as my songs being an education, I mean, they educate me as much as anybody else, you know. So, Which is more enjoyable then for you, Pierce, uh, performing or composing there are two entirely different venues. 
Well, it's both, really. Uh, that's like asking an actor what if he enjoys making movies or being on stage. They're just such different things, you know. Um, I enjoy composing when it's done. Uh, it, it could sometimes be kind of, a, I think Leonard Cohen said it's being on your knees trying to find a rhyme for orange, you know. <laughs> uh, but on the other hand, there's a wonderful feeling when you feel like you've got something and then you want to play it for everybody and drive them all crazy. And it's, uh, well, I, I'm fortunate that I can take my work out on the stage and immediately find out if it's any good, you know. And uh, so I enjoy both. They work together, but they're very separate things. Do you have a particular process that you use when you're writing? Well, uh, no, not really. Um, when I'm out on the road or I'm doing other things, I, I try to carry notebooks and I speak memos and things into my phone. Sometimes I'll even jot down a little bit of, uh, of notation, you know. But uh, but I, these are little bits and pieces, and whenever I can find the time, which is rare, uh, then I gather all that together and just see what I've got. And I also save everything. So I'll go back to ideas and things I had 10, 15 years ago and, you know, half-written songs and verses or whatever and just see if anything uh, looks good <laughs> or fits with something I'm doing now, you know. And um, so that's about it. Richard Dreyfuss, uh, the actor, once had an interesting comment. He said, when I was young, I wanted to be a star. I became a star and I forgot how to be an actor. Is that an innate fear that any creative person should tender? I just think you just focus on what you love and, and uh, let the rest take care of itself. Uh, if you love acting, just be an actor, you know. I mean, when I first went to muscle shows, uh, Jimmy Johnson sat me down in his office and he says, you want to be a star? And I said, yeah. And he says, okay, you're a star. Now what do you want to be? <laughs> and that was, that was good advice. You know, in mm -hmm. other words... The attitude in Muscle Shows was check your ego at the door and play music. And it didn't matter who you were. And uh, I saw them, you know, they treated everybody the same, whether it was Rod Stewart or Paul Simon or the kid down the street. Everybody was the same. And, um, you know, you check your ego at the door and you play music. And, um, yeah, I learned a lot from those guys. I, I think that's the proper attitude, really. You started, you performed, you were here, there, and everywhere sharing your talent. And then came the release of Moments. Can you describe the process whereby that album was put out there on the stage? Well, yeah, it was an album that I did in Huntsville, Alabama, uh, with a friend of mine at the time, uh, at a little studio and... Uh, you know, we scraped together some money, and uh, we got some friends from Nashville, including uh, Mac McNally, who come down and play. And uh, also got some friends come up from Florida that I'd known at Florida State. And uh, we just made the record, and then uh, and then we made another record, and it was the second record we made that got picked up by Wyndham Hill. So, you know. Could you uh, describe your relationship with Mark Hurd? Well, Mark was a friend. Um I was a big fan of T-Bone Burnett, and I still am. And um, I was trying to get, when I was signed with um, Wyndham Hill High Street, I was trying my best to get them to, to hire T-Bone to, to produce a record for me. I really wanted to do that. But it turns out T-Bone was pretty expensive. And uh, <laughs> But uh, we had a, uh, I had a friend who managed Mark, and some other people knew T-Bone really well. Mark and T-Bone were good friends. And uh, he says, well, you know, if you like T-Bone, you'd like Mark Hurd, and he's not nearly as expensive. And he says, and by the way, he says, besides, 
how do you tell a producer who's way more famous than you that you don't want this saxophone part? You know, um, you can't really. So um, that's so I, I went out and I met Mark and uh, and I liked him and uh, we ended up working together and becoming friends. You know. Um, and that was uh, probably one of the biggest. Mark has been one of the most influential friendships of my life, really. Even though I only knew him for a couple of years. When you perform for someone like that, or with someone like that, for that matter, and you've reached a, a pinnacle, a peak, when something happens where it all works, have you ever been conscious of the fear that perhaps tomorrow night it won't be as good? Oh, well, you can't think like that because every night is different, you know? It's like, you know, if you have an actor every night you go out on stage, it's always different, you know? It's a different audience, a different feeling. You you eat something different for dinner or whatever. It's always different. And uh, you, you uh, what you do, however, I, I find that what you, your goal is to try to get into your zone if you can. And um, for me, at least, the way to do that is to try to get over myself. If I can get over myself, then I can get over the fear, and I can get over thinking about what people think of me or anything else, and just get into the music. And uh, the more you do that, then you start to pick up on what the audience is feeling, and it starts to, you know, recycle, and uh, it's, it can become a wonderful thing. It can become bigger than the sum of its parts at that point, you know. But that doesn't happen every night. Those are special nights. You are at the pinnacle of folk artistry, and many people have different definitions of what folk music really is. People say jazz. Uh, Wynton Marcellus was adamant that jazz was never Dixieland and so forth. We give titles to everything. How would you describe folk music? What essentially is it for the listener? I don't know. I, You know, it's uh, it depends on... There are so many definitions, and Frankly, it's some people call it the four-letter word. You know, it's kiss of death. Some people, well, I, I, I like to think of it as acoustic music, and that can encompass anything from jazz to uh, blues to you know rhythm and blues to uh, you know. I mean, folk music. I guess. I mean, originally it meant music of the people. You know, in other words, music not music that's handed down from academia and uh, hours of be. Like music that comes up from the streets. So in that sense, you know, Robert Johnson would be folk music. Uh, Woody Guthrie, I guess, uh, of course. Uh, but also, uh, you know, Hank Williams. And, uh, you know, uh, also Muddy Waters and uh, Charlie Paris and, uh, and all those guys. I mean, it's music that comes up from the people. And, uh, you know, so that could be a number of things. Um but the term itself, it makes people think of kumbaya and, you know, holding hands and, you know, <laughs> silliness. <laughs> and, uh, for me, I, I just, you know, I try to, I don't take myself too seriously, but I, I would like to be taken a little more seriously than that. I understand. Uh, Janis Joplin once said that everybody has their back to the wall. Her argument was you are especially creative as an individual. When there's an element of passion, when there's an element of pain, I've talked to people who disagree adamantly with that. How do you feel about it? Well, of course, Janice, uh, unfortunately, only lived to be 26, so you know, that's as far as she went in terms of life experience. Um, I try to avoid pain as a general rule, uh, whether I'm being creative or not. I'm, uh, 
I've experienced pain and I've experienced pleasure, and I I tend to think pleasure is better. And uh, <laughs> indeed, yes, pleasure is one of the few things in life you wish to do again. <laughs> yes, and as often as possible. <laughs> <laughs> when you listen to other performers playing a creation of yours. What is? What are your reactions? What are your feelings? Are you editing them in your own mind? No, I'm honored. And uh, from the moment I write a song and release it into the atmosphere, it's it's no longer really mine. Well, the copyright's mine, but the song itself is, um, you know, it belongs to whoever wants to sing it. And it's I love hearing other people make it their song. I mean, that's that's the goal of a songwriter. You don't, your goal is not for your song to be an advertisement for your own ego. It's a, you know, that, that song is supposed to belong to other people. It's, it's supposed to, it's supposed to be universal. It's supposed to invoke feelings in them. And some people have done my songs and brought things out of those songs that I didn't even know were there. And uh, I'm always honored by that. You mentioned the audience is different each night. When you perform a signature song, are you different each night? Is the song in essence, different? Uh, well, I think the songs are the same, but my feelings, uh, while I'm doing them, I mean, it's a little like method acting, you know. Uh, uh, some nights a particular song might be all, a little more apropos, you know. And um, But, you know, I just try, you know, I just do the songs. I just try to pull out of the songs whatever's in them. And uh, But, of course, like I said, you know, uh, it, it feels different every time, you know. You do a great show one night, and you think, oh, tomorrow will be easy, and then the next night it can be a disaster, and you have no idea why. You know, you just get out there and do the best you can. Given that statement, then, how do you maintain the level of energy that's necessary to captivate an audience for two hours? Well, after a while, you, you just do it. You just turn it on when you go on stage. Um, that just comes from doing it for a long time. You just... You walk out there, and, and then you turn it on, and that's what you do. And uh, it's kind of hard to explain, really, but, um, you know, it's if the audience is good, uh, they can just make it, you know, they give you all the energy you'll ever need. If the audience is difficult, then you really have to pull it out of yourself, and that can be exhausting, but you still do it, because that's why you're there, you know. Pete Townsend uh used the quotation to describe small audience. He said, it's more difficult to perform for a small audience because they're really listening. Is it, uh, in your resume, in your mind, more difficult to speak to five people sitting around the dinner table than 55,000 people in an arena? Well, <laughs> I'm sort of an introvert and uh, with an extrovert job. So for me, it's the same whether it's I'm performing for five people or 5,000. I mean... I always relate to them as if it's a single person. I always talk to them as if I'm talking to just one person. But in a social setting, at a party or something, I'm, I'm really uncomfortable. I, I really, usually I want to say hello, try not to say anything stupid and get out of there, you know. Um, and uh, I make a point of talking to people after the show. And I try not to talk to them before the show because, frankly, I, it just takes too much concentration. And I just, and I don't want to be rude, you know. But after the show, then I'm yeah I'm expansive and I'm happy and then I'm, I like talking to people and I, and I try to again I'm there for them they're not there for me so you know I try to keep that in mind. Given that attitude, uh, do you find yourself self-editing? 
Oh, yeah, everybody does. I mean, yeah, you know, sometimes I'll go out and do a show I think was terrible, and people will tell me it was great, and I feel guilty, you know. But um, but ultimately, it's the audience's call, you know. And um, so I just leave it in their hands. Is there a song, then, you wish you had written? Well, I'm pretty happy with the ones I have written. There's some songs I admire a great deal. Um, you know, uh, I think John Gorka's song Silence is one of the best songs I've ever heard. Uh, or, um, you know, and um, there's some great songs, but I, no, I'm, I'm happy with my own material. I don't really compare with other people. It's a healthy way to look at it. Uh, I'm not entirely sure whether uh, that many people would feel that way, but that says something nice about you. Those stories of uh, people sitting in Johnny Cash's living room and just trading songs, do you find that kind of thing stimulating? I, I do uh, at times. Um, you know, I don't do it very often. Uh, I really don't have time very often, but uh, sure, it's a great thing, especially if it's in a non-competitive situation. I mean, I've been in these writer circles in Nashville from time to time where it's all about, oh, this is another one that Reba recorded or whatever, and, you know, and it's like everybody's trying to, you know, <laughs> you know, I don't want to play that game. But when it's all about just the, the songs themselves and everybody enjoying each other's work, then it's wonderful, you know. I would think it would be more natural, more relaxing to let the song come we often, especially with young people, encourage them to write within a 43-minute teaching period. Do you feel that most creative material simply has to come when it's ready to come out? Uh, yeah. Uh, I think you, um, you know, you can't force it. You, you work at it. You put it together as best you can. You come back to it. You know, your best songs take either half an hour or 20 years. You know, I mean, it's, you know... And it's, uh, you just have to, you know, there's, for me at least, there's no method. I think people that put too much in the method end up writing, probably writing really, um, well, I don't know. I don't want to go there. I don't want to criticize other people, but, um, you know. I understand what you're saying. Father's Son, it's a marvelous album, marvelous record, marvelous series of songs. From Conception to Fruition, can you follow through? It seems to be the most intensely personal thing that I've heard uh, in recent years. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. Well, there's a lot of personal stuff, but for me, uh, all this stuff is material. I mean, the ultimate goal is just to write a song. And, um, you know, I think writers who get too self-indulgent, you know, can... Yeah, nobody's that important or that interesting. <laughs> but uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, everything that happens to you is material. And uh, if you turn it outward from yourself, uh, you, you not only is your own life material, but everybody else's and everything you read and everything you observe. And, and you can just put it all together in any way you want to. You know, it's, you're totally free to do that. Um, yes, I put a lot of personal things in my work, especially on this album, but, but that wasn't the point of the album. I mean... You know, uh, we we basically looked at probably 50 songs, you know, but uh, the ones we ended up choosing just sort of fit together and they fit the theme. I mean, we decided fairly early on the theme was going to be, you know, father, son, in one way or another. So, Is there a point beyond which you'd rather not go, a kind of discomforting stage, 
the Nina Simone quote where she said, I'm afraid to go down too deeply for those sounds. They might kill me. There are performers who are so personal that you know their life story when they've sung. Do you have a gate that goes across your creativity beyond which you'd rather not go? No, not really. Uh, what's that Bob Dylan line? But for the sky, there are no fences facing. I love that. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, you're, you're, it's, it's, you're only limited by how far you allow your imagination to go, you know? And as far as people being afraid of their own emotions, uh, I mean, I think that's a job for therapists, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to be offensive, but, uh, you know, my job is not to inflict my uh, psychosis on an audience. It's to write songs. <laughs> I certainly appreciate that. So, too, does my listening audience. Is there then, uh, they might argue that there's a book in everyone. I would imagine for a lyricist, there's a book of poems or simply a book of words put together in a marvelous way that's in everyone. Is there a book in your future? No, I have too much respect for novelists, and uh, I'm too lazy to do that sort of work. Uh, yeah, there might be a book in everyone. Doesn't mean it's a good book. Um, <laughs> probably the phone book in some people, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm uh, yeah, we all have a story to tell. I think you know, of course we do. Is there a signature song, one that you go back to, something that you do? that you know will carry an emotional gravitas with it? Something that brings you to a moment? Uh, well, there's some songs I play every night. I, I always do You Move Me, and uh, partially because it's one everybody generally knows, you know, because it, it was so successful, but also because it's, it, it, that song means a lot to me because it was written under some very difficult circumstances and it turned, about, turned out to be a song that helped pay for my house, you know. <laughs> And uh, that's kind of cool, but uh, there's other songs. Um, I tell you, for years I opened with the Jesse Winchester song, Showman's Life, because I just love the song, and I love what he's saying in that song, because I traveled with Jesse. I know exactly what he means in that song. And so for years I would do that song backstage to warm up my voice, but also to kind of get my attitude straight before I walked out. And after a while I thought, yeah, I should just record this. And so I did, you know, on the album. But uh, that's a song that kind of centers me, I guess. How do you deal with those who think they know you simply because they're listeners to your songs, the people in the audience who approach in a very casual way? There doesn't seem to be much privacy with many public figures. Well, I wouldn't consider myself a public figure, but uh, you're right about the privacy part with other people I know. some people, I think in some ways, people that know my songs do know me better than people who know me, um, because there's a part of me that's very uh, personal, and, um, you know, you kind of go to level three, uh, you know, when you write sometimes. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, you know, that's the person I am on stage. I mean, it, it, that is me. I'm not faking anything, but it's a different persona than the one I have with my kids or the one I have with uh the clerk at the local grocery store, you know, so um, I guess we all do, you know. Um, so, um, you know, no, I don't have any fear of that. I, I don't mind. Uh, I, I Part of your job is, is creating an artist's mystique, you know. So when you go out, you, people want to be um, vicariously connected with you. Um, they want to feel like they're part of you, and, and I like that. I, I welcome that. Uh, it's a responsibility, Um 
which is why I try to talk to people and I try to share with people if I can. And people write me, I do my best to answer them if I can, you know, because, you know, I, I, I do this in the public and they, they, they're entitled to that. They're not entitled to my personal life or my kids or anything, but, uh, you know, you, everybody knows where to draw those boundaries. What brought you to a mountaintop in Alabama? It's 10 miles from where I grew up, and uh, I knew I knew the area very well. And uh, But also, at the time, um, my kids were living in Atlanta, my older kids, and my job was in Nashville. And uh, it just so happened where I was raised, it was exactly halfway between those two points. And so rather than live in the town I grew up in, which I really didn't want to do, uh, Lookout Mountain was right there. So I rented a house on top of the mountain, and uh, later on I had the opportunity to buy a house. So that's what I did. Do you enjoy those moments of solitude? Are they your most creative moments? I don't know if they're my most creative, but I do enjoy the solitude. Um, I really do. And more and more. I love going home. People will often reuse that line, going home, do you go back to previous moments to write, or is everything essentially new? Uh, both, you know, and sometimes I pull out half-written ideas from 20 years ago and finish them, you know. I mean, it's whatever I can get my hands on. What stimulates you more than anything else? A moment, a, a politicized moment, a natural moment, looking out your window, sunrise, sunset. What stimulates you most when you're putting a lyric to paper? Well, frankly, when I was working at Pyrogram and later at Universal, I found that I was in a room where I could look out the window. It was a distraction. I mean, my best writing was when I was in a room by myself on a table with a buzzing fluorescent light. I mean, it, it all has to come out of your mind, you know. And um, this thing of getting on a mountaintop and being inspired, I, that just never worked for me. I mean, I, mountaintops are nice, and sometimes I can think of something nice, but most of the time, it's just sitting down and doing that ditch-digging work, you know. Uh, somebody asked Faulkner one time what inspired him, and he says, I don't have time to be inspired. I'm too busy writing, mm. you know. Um, and that's true. He also said, to paraphrase, uh, that one has to write each day. It's a talent you have to build in the muscle of your mind. Do you write each day? No, I don't. I wish I could, but I'm my own manager and I'm my own booking agent and everything else. In fact, I have a 14-hour drive to make right now to Texas, and, you know, that takes up a lot of my time. So, no, I can't write every day. I wish I could, but it's impossible, um, you know, at this point. What then lies at the end of this 14-hour drive? Uh, I wish, well, I'm driving to Austin. I'm going to stay with a friend. That I work with down there. He's a keyboard player named David Webb. He's a wonderful guy, and we do. We're going to be doing shows together this year, uh, quite a lot. In fact, David's uh, best known. He was Jimmy LaFave's piano player for a long time, and uh, I knew David before that when I was in Clinton Hill. But anyway, um, I'm going to crash at David's, and then we're going and doing shows in Waco and Dallas and Houston, and, uh, and then I go on and do some more by myself. Some people love that to show every night, pack up, gone, pack up, gone. Do you enjoy that kind of itinerary? Well, it's not a matter if I enjoy it. It's just my job, you know. I mean, mm. 
uh, yeah, I enjoy traveling, you know, but packing up, no, that's just work, you know. It's just the work you have to do. Is there a genre you'd love to explore? A genre? Uh, there's some genres I'd like to know more about. Um, uh, I, I would like to be better educated on uh, in hip-hop, for example. Uh, uh, you know, my sons are all into various artists that I still don't quite understand. <laughs> but uh, but I know they're on to something, and uh, I would like to give that a little more time. I would like to be more knowledgeable in jazz. I've never given that enough time. But, you know, you can only do so much in one lifetime, so I don't worry about it. You're feeling it. You're feeling it, and perhaps we can do the review for both of us in our next lives. But you've certainly filled your moments. Some people argue that there's natural music. Sidney Poitier, I believe, had a quote where he said, uh, when asked why African-Americans dance so well, he said, you dance the Watusi, we are the Watusi. Do you think there is something that we can define as natural music for any cultural group? Oh, I don't know. I think you'd have to ask an anthropologist that question. Uh, you know, uh, oh, Woody Guthrie wrote, oh, not, uh, Pete Seeger actually wrote a great book about um, uh, folk songs and where music comes from and all that. And uh, he had some interesting theories. But as for myself, uh, you know, I really don't know. Do you feel that certain types of music, i.e. classical and so forth, should be completely structured and played essentially the same each time? Um, well, I suppose a classical um, artist would, would agree with that, though I think there's a lot to be said for improvisation. Bach certainly allowed a lot of it in his work. Uh, most people I know that study that, you know, that study that seriously get pretty fed up with Bach because they have to, you know, they spend so much time with him. But, um, uh, you know, it's, uh, yeah, there's structure. I mean, uh, there are composers who want their work done a certain way, but then there's different interpretations, you know, that work. There's still a bit of reway, but I, again, I'm I'm really not a, a credible on, on, in that subject. I'm not a I'm not a classical artist, so you know, I I would really defer to someone who's more in that field. In this hour, we've had and it's gone rather quickly, and that says something about a good program. You've mentioned a great many people authors, writers, and so forth. You sound like you must be a voracious reader or at least eclectic in your interests. Am I reading you correctly? Well, I'm eclectic, but I'm, uh, and I do read, but I'm, I'm widely ignorant, really. Uh, you know, I read whatever comes to mind. And I've been around, I've had, I'll tell you, really, I've had the good fortune of being around a lot of well-read people, and I pick up things, I think, more from them. Uh, um, but as far as being, you know, this encyclopedia of, of knowledge, I'm no, I'm an encyclopedia of ignorance. You know, I'm widely ignorant. Methinks uh, you're a bit too modest, but we shall leave it at that. There is a school in New York, the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. They often ask a series of questions. The final question being, when the time is over. When a person is at the pearly gates or where he is and ever will be at the termination of his life, how would you like a life to be judged? Oh, man, I don't know. Uh, you know, um, really, it's funny we think of things in such a linear way, and we always think in terms of happy endings. So very few people experience a happy ending. I mean, Dying of cancer in a hospital is not a happy ending. You know, wrapping your car on a 
Kellogg calls a happy ending. I think your happy endings have to be somewhere between the point of birth and death. And um, as far as being remembered, I mean, on which day? <laughs> you know, I mean, I wouldn't want to be remembered for the way I was on a bad day when I'm swearing at all the other drivers and whatever. You know, I just hope I did more good than harm. That's all. Do you have distinctively future plans, things that uh, are in the box that you're going to take out and you will do? Uh, yeah, I have, a, I have a lot of songs. I own songs for several albums. I'd like to get those down into some form before I check out, if at all possible. But on the other hand, I wouldn't kill me a... <laughs> interesting choice of words if I, if I didn't um, yeah. I'd like to work <laughs> I'm a bit disconcerted by that word checking out <laughs> yeah but um, I would uh, you know I wouldn't mind doing some work with my kids uh, two of my oldest uh, my older children are in music but on the other hand it'd be like being sewn up in a bag of cats you know because we're all so different so uh, I, mean, I, I mean I have a lot of ideas a lot of things I'd like to do I have, you know I have a million ideas every day and maybe one or two of them are any good you know is there a question in your professional career that you have not been asked that you would have liked to have been? Yeah, well, why do you have so much money? <laughs> so I'm, I'm speaking to someone innately wealthy? Yeah, yeah. no. <laughs> I'm wealthy in some ways, but you know, at any rate, you know, right now I'm afraid I'm, I'm yeah, uh, no, but... Um, I'm just thinking about that. I'm sorry. I'm, I was thinking about that long drive I got to make. You know, so play the radio, sing your songs, look out the window. What makes uh, those fourteen hours go so quickly? Uh, books usually. I, I if I start listening to music, I go to sleep. So you know, I try to. I, I do a lot of podcasts. I do uh, audio books, and you know, um, what is it? Audible dot com stuff like that, and. Uh, I love history podcasts. I, there's one uh, that my favorite guy, his name is um, uh, Carlton. I thought, what, what is his name? Uh, well, anyway, he's got a thing called Hardcore History, and he does these four or five-hour podcasts on things like, you know, uh, the Mongolian Empire or, you know, the, you know World War One or whatever, and, it, and they're just fascinating. So that keeps me going pretty good. Able to step into the character? Uh, well, those characters, no, those were horrible things. But uh, um, but I but I, I love history. I, I to me, history is just fascinating. And uh, um, but uh, characters, I'm like, no, I'm pretty happy just being me. You know, I mean, uh, I mean, I, I'm I'm kind of a jerk, but I like this jerk. You know, I think that a lot of healthy people, those who are healthy, can relate to that distinctively just being satisfied in their own skin and knowing who they are, looking in the mirror and shaving and recognizing the person each morning. Too many of us look for something behind us, and it's not there. Yeah, no, it's not. And besides, you know, if you don't know who you are, that you're still, I guess, in adolescence, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, you're supposed to figure out who you are and then grow up, you know, I think. Um, what do I know? If you feel that, uh, on a personal level, you've maintained that level of creativity throughout the years, you mentioned adolescence. Seeger said that his best songs might have been behind him, but it'll still write for the express purpose of seeing if one hits. Do you feel there are certain stages in one's life, and your writing now is different than your writing 10 years ago? 
Well, it's different, definitely different. I mean, because you know, I, I'm concerned about different things, and I'm, I'm I like to think I'm a little better, you know, more experienced. But uh, I don't worry about you know my best or worst being ahead of me or behind me. I mean, it's just one song at a time, you know. You just do it until you can't do it no more. That's about it. What is then the most imperative piece of advice you've been given by a fellow creative artist? Something you've harbored, nurtured, remembered? Hmm. Well, I think probably the best advice I ever got was from Jesse Winchester. He said, don't, and I wish I'd have followed it better. He said, don't let your kids grow up without you. That's what he said. That's very good advice, no matter what you do. Someone once told me, uh, unfortunately, a survivor of wartime experience said that the emptiness of being missing was so incredibly difficult that loneliness was a lover he could trust, and he was worried that he still maintained that feeling. Do you encourage creativity in young people, in your own children? Well, I encourage creativity. I I've never encourage them to do this for a living because it's just hard, you know. But as far as being creative, oh, yeah, everyone should encourage creativity because it will always help you in whatever you do uh, to be creative, you know, but think on the outside the box, to, you know, to not necessarily follow the plan. you got to know the plan, but then make up your own plan. Um, you know, that's we all are capable of that if we'll just let ourselves be that way, you know. So, yeah, creativity should be encouraged and not stifled, you know. Do we all have a plan? Basically, uh, those people in education are always given to lesson plans, and yet it seems that there are some things in this life that shouldn't be mapped out on a page. You didn't seem to have a plan in your career, and yet it worked. Did you just write it as it came? Yeah, I mean, uh, sometimes in life you just let... Um you find your way along the way, you know. Uh, so, speaking of along the way, I've, I've got to make that 14-hour drive. <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, almost 1 o'clock where I am. So, that's what, that's pretty early in the morning, so. I can appreciate that. And uh, I think perhaps uh, it's time to turn you loose on the road. First star on the right, straight on till morning, you'll find your way. It has been my pleasure to interview you. I hope, uh, in a point of fact, we might be able to do it again. I would, too. I, and I'm sorry to be uh, have to cut this off. I just, man, I just know what's going to happen. But, uh, yeah, there's a great quote from uh, Hugh Blumenfeld, a uh, great songwriter from Fast Folk Days. He said, uh, he had a song, he said, the North Star, North Star um, points to Boston, but it's easier to follow signs on 95. <laughs> <laughs> so be it. <laughs> Be well, and uh, thank you for being with us. Our guest has been Pierce Pettis. The program is called Seldom Said. My name is Robert. Pierce, be well. Drive careful. Thank you, Bob. I appreciate it. Yeah.